Well, good morning, church. Man, I love, 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 love our partnership with Compassion International. If you're new to Biltmore Church, uh, we've been partners with Compassion for several years here. And what uh, the overarching goal there is to rescue children from poverty in the name of Jesus. And right now, uh, Biltmore Church sponsors somewhere north of 3,000 children and would love for you to play a part in that as well. But the video you just saw also talks about the child development centers that are being built. There's three of them right now, but the ones that you uh, saw the video on or the one you saw the video on is one of two that are under construction. And when those are nearing completion, we'll be having a compassion day, probably sometime in the spring where you can jump on board. There's very few things that smell as much like Jesus as our partnership with compassion. All right. So anyway, it's great to see how a story that God started 70 years ago in the jungles of Ecuador has intersected with the story God is writing at Biltmore Church in Western North Carolina. All right, so glad you're here. Take your Bibles if you've got them uh, and turn to Philippians. We've been in there. This will be uh, week three. If you were here last week, man, Dan Leanne just knocked it out of the park uh, with uh, with uh, the text that he was given. But today we're going to be finishing up chapter one. And here's, uh, if, here's just a little bit of uh, insight from me. I've got a few pet peeves. One of my pet peeves comes from a long, long time ago, and that pet peeve basically are Christian, are Christian cliches, all right? A bumper sticker theology. Not growing up in church, I came to Christ at 17. And so at 17, I had not read hardly any of the Bible. And so I started reading my Bible at 17, as well as to some degree getting immersed in the Christian subculture. And this Christian subculture, things like what you, when you go into the Christian bookstores and Bible bookstores, and you start to see all the Christian stuff, Christian music, Christian art, Christian needlepoint, Christian coffee mugs, Christian t-shirts, all that stuff. And what was interesting is as I was reading my Bible and then I would be kind of getting immersed in that, I started getting, I started seeing a disconnect between what were kind of the cliches, Christian cliches that didn't have a hundred percent connection with the Bible that I was also reading. So here's a few of the ones that are probably my least favorite. All right. Um, One of them is uh, you're never more safe uh, than in God's will. You're never more safe than you're in God's will. Now, in some degree, that's true in in eternity for sure. But when most people use it physically, you're never more safe, the safest place to be in the middle of God's will. Uh, I mean, that that is not true. It's not true. I mean, how do you talk to talk to our brothers and sisters in China? All right. Even this last week, pastor got drug out of his church with the authorities. Was he out of God's will? Of course he was not out of God's will. All right. The Bible even says there's going to be times when, you know what, because of your stand, because of your love for Christ, that's going to cause uh, a ton of friction and could cause a lot of uh, discomfort for you. Another one would be this. uh, God will not give us, this is one of the most, God will not give us more than we can handle. God will not give us more than we can handle. Uh, Where in the Bible is that? Nowhere. It's not in the Bible. Send me the verse. It's not in the Bible. The closest is in regard to temptation in 1 Corinthians, but God definitely at times will give you more than you and I can handle so that we will then lean into him, pray to him, talk to him, trust in him. Uh, one more. Uh, this, this, is good. this is good for me to just, this is like therapy for me. I can, I can get all this stuff out. Here's, here's one more. Uh, and that is that uh, God helps those who can help themselves. God helps those who can help themselves. The Bible, Bible does not say that. That's not Bible. That's Benjamin Franklin, okay? Uh, God, actually, I think Spurgeon said it correctly when he said the gospel actually is that God helps those who admit they cannot help themselves. But it doesn't have to just be on needlepoint or coffee mugs. It can sometimes creep its way into music, even hymns. 
And so uh, one hymn that I heard early on, uh, it actually has some great truths to it, but it's, the, it's a hymn, I think it's called At the Cross. And, and a lot of it's really, really good. At the cross, at the cross. I'm not going to sing for you. Where I first saw the light and the burden of my Thanks, sin was moved away. It was there by faith I received my sight. But the last phrase was curious to me. It says, then I am happy all the day. I'm happy all the day. And then I was reading my Bible. I was like, man, it doesn't look like Job was like super happy all the time. When I, read, when I was reading the Psalms, I'm like, doesn't look like some of the psalmists were super happy. And even the way they would describe Jesus as a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. And what I saw about the whole idea of happy all the day is the Bible doesn't say that we're going to be happy. As a matter of fact, happy is based on happenings. And so it's really a roller coaster we can be on. And even in, and, and the reason it's kind of crept in pretty good is because in our country, it's like right in our founding documents. I mean, Declaration of Independence is like, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And man, we go after that, don't we? We go after the pursuit of happiness. Nothing wrong with being happy, but when we go after it, it seems like such a roller coaster ride. Sometime we'll try it. I mean, it, it, we are not without people telling us how to be happy. Just Google how to be happy, and like I did this week in sermon research, and how to be happy. You get, I don't know how many responses 25 ways to be happy, six ways to be happy, nine ways science can make you happy. Now, if, if that doesn't work, then what happens? And then it's products. I mean, we. Advertisement is built on, hey, buy our stuff and you'll be happy, okay? Uh, buy this car, drink this beer, um, get this vacation home, uh, have this boat and you'll be happy. And well, we've all gone for those and found out they are at best sandcastles that, you know, the first wave that comes on, boom, they are gone. Or even uh, sometimes it's people. It's like, man, if I could, let's be honest. Some of you out there, there was a time when you said, if I could just get married, I'll be happy. If I could just get married, I will be happy. And now some of you who said that before you were married, you are now married and you're like, if I could just get unmarried, then I would be happy. And so what I'm gonna tell you is the Bible does not talk that much about happiness because that's a roller coaster way to live. God actually has something much better for us and that's what the Bible actually calls joy, all right? Joy. 450 times in the Bible, God tells us to rejoice, sing about joy, shout about joy, be full of joy. And here's what I know to be true in my own life and in some of yours. Um, if you don't have joy, man, it just aches. You search for it everywhere. But almost even worse is if you once had the joy and then you lost it, that is painful because you know how awesome it can be but then it's gone and you're like, how do I get the joy back? That's what we're gonna talk about today is how do I get the joy back? Now, before we jump into our text, gotta be a little technical. I wanna give you a definition of what joy is, just to be clear. I read 10 different definitions of joy this week. And so what I did is, as I looked at them, I'm just gonna give you one we're gonna use. The other ones are probably better, but I wanted to be original. So here is a definition on your screen of uh, what joy in the Bible encompasses. All right, so here it is, I'll read it twice. Joy is the supernatural delight produced by beholding the beauty of Christ and his gospel. Right. It's kind of wordy, best I could do. Here's what it is. It's the supernatural delight. It is, it's something God does. It's supernatural. He commands us to have it, but if he doesn't come along and give it to us, we don't have it. It's the supernatural 
delight. It's an emotion, all right? It is an emotion, but it's produced by something, by beholding the person of Jesus and the whole gospel story. Um, here's what I'm gonna, here's what I'm just trying to tell you. A lot of people, when they look at the book of Philippians, they think the book of Philippians is about how to have joy. They're like, okay, Philippians about joy. There's sermon series, how to have joy, the book of Philippians. That's not what the book is about. The book is not about how to have joy. Three steps to joy, nine steps to joy. That's not what it's about. As a matter of fact, joy is mentioned a ton in here, but it's a byproduct. Joy is mentioned like 18 times. Jesus and the gospel are mentioned 69 times. The whole thing is everything changed with the gospel. And so what happens is when we understand what the gospel is and we understand how awesome Jesus is, then the joy actually uh, comes back. So here's what I'm gonna do. There's some things that steal our joy. Uh, there's probably more than these two. There definitely is more than these two. Obviously sin can steal our joy. David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. But the two you see here illustrated in our text today would be difficult people, conflict with people, and difficult circumstances. So how do I get the joy back? How do I get the joy back? Again, some of us have never had it. Some of us had it and lost it. And we're like, I got to have that back. So Philippians chapter one is where we're going to be. Let me read verse 18. I'm going to read the text all the way through 18 to 24 and then come back and deal with basically how do we deal with difficult people? And then how do we deal with difficult circumstances? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know, that's a super important word, for I know or I have confidence that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored or magnified or made large in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, listen, if I live or die, he's not saying he knows he's going to get out. What he's saying is whether I get out because I am somehow uh, spring, sprung from this jail, or if I die and go to be with Jesus, either way, let me honor God by the way I live or by the way that I die. And then the coffee cup verse, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It actually literally is for me, it's to live Christ, to die gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. And then the last verse we're gonna cover. It's my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Here's the first one. If you're going to get your joy back, and you can get it back today, but if you're going to get your joy back, you have to understand how do I resolve personal conflict? How do I resolve that? What do I do with personal conflict? Again, verse 18, he's looking back. He's looking back and He's looking back to verse 15, 16, and 17 about some people who had been very critical of him, had been rivals with him, had put him down, had probably spread rumors about him. And what you and I need to know is, listen, other people, conflict, unresolved conflict with other people, whether that be your ex, whether that be your ex-business partner, whether that be with your spouse, whatever that is, if you have conflict that's unresolved just sitting there, uh, uh, joy will evaporate very, very quickly. There's virtually no way that you can ignore conflict and still have joy. 
And so what you see in the apostle Paul is he has all of this stuff going on. Verse 15 talks about rivalry, about the affliction they've given him, about all the arguments against him and the rumors. We don't know what they are. Maybe the rumors were like, man, Paul's in jail because he's got some hidden sin or he's got some terrible theology or what. Now keep in mind, listen, they're not talking about false teachers, all right? Their teaching was actually correct. Other places when Paul addresses false teachers, man, he gives it to them, all right? Galatians, for example. I mean, he bears, he does not pull any punches. But in this case, he's got some other believers that have the right message. They just have the wrong motive. And verse 18 is our great example. He's like, really what matters? It doesn't really matter about my reputation. It matters about Jesus's reputation. But if you look at the whole letter, here's what I want you to just put in your mind for here in a few weeks, or you can look at it later on. In chapter four, he calls out two ladies by name. And keep in mind back then, they would take a letter from the apostle Paul, they would stand up in front of a church and they would read it out loud and all the people would be out there. And he actually names names. He's like, hey, tell these, and he names the two ladies, tell them to agree in the Lord. And so the whole idea of our relationships and conflict is huge. And what Paul ties it back to is he's saying the way that you and I treat each other, the way that you and I treat particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ is advertising. In other words, our horizontal relationships with each other in the church is advertising for our vertical relationship with God through Jesus. I read this week where $246 billion is spent in advertising every year in the U.S., $246 billion. The number one, the number one buyer of advertising is Comcast. All right. Number one, you're like, what's the big deal with that? Well, I found out through some heavy research that Comcast is actually the parent company who put out that movie Cats, which probably gives you the reason they got to spend so much money on advertising, but they're number one. Number two is AT&T, $246 billion on advertising. Here's what let me just say it again. Our horizontal relationships advertise our vertical relationship with God. Verse 27, he's going to put it this way. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, let the way you live, let the way you live be worthy of the price that was paid for you. So let me just make a statement. And if you get upset, so be it. All right. We're talking about conflict resolution. So we'll get it straightened out later on. It is impossible to really experience the grace of God, the grace of the gospel, and then turn around and not show grace on at least an increasing manner. It's impossible for you or I to understand and to behold and be living in the gospel of Jesus and understand the generosity of the gospel and not be generous. It's impossible to understand and live in the love of the gospel and not be loving people. It's impossible because why? Because your vertical relationship changes your horizontal relationships with other people. And let me be clear. Let me just, let me, here's my deal. I've been doing this deal for a long time. I've been doing this pastor deal for almost 30 years. And what I've observed is oftentimes, oftentimes Christians are better at the way they treat people outside of the faith than the way they treat people inside of the faith. Not all the time. Sometimes people just sit there and they just bash the culture. But what happens oftentimes in growing churches and churches doing outreach and trying to win people to Christ is sometimes we show more kindness and grace and forgiveness to those outside of the faith, which we, we should show them that, but we somehow default to those inside of the faith. You're like, well, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Here's, here's a little moniker we've done for years here. 
There are major things and there are minor things. Some of you are like, no, everything's major. Well, that's not true. You're just a legalist, all right? Everything is not major. Major stuff is like doctrinal issues, okay? That's a major deal. Or behavioral issues that are clear black and white. Those are major issues. And so on major issues, you do take action. That's Christian love. You take action on major issues, all right? Whatever that is, you take the action, you get clarification, you write the letter. If somebody's close with you who's about to put their, you know, their, their car, their life in the ditch, then Christian love is not to ignore it and not just say, oh, let's all pray about it. It's you take action and you go and you try to stop that. But about 95% of what Christians tend to argue about is not major, it is minor. And so on the majors, you take action. On the minors, you and I show acceptance. Let me say it again, 90 to 95% of the stuff Christians fight about is minor. It is personal preferences. This is what I prefer. I like this. I would worship this way. I would reopen churches at this pace. I would use that music. I would dress this way. I would use that version of the Bible. And what Paul says is, you know what? That stuff doesn't matter. What matters is that Christ is proclaimed. That's what he's saying. He's like, you know what? Those people are doing some stuff with bad motives even. They got bad motives. They're even running me down. But bottom line is they're preaching truth. And if they're preaching truth and they're preaching the fact that Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live and then died the death we deserve to die, they're preaching that. You know what? My reputation could take a hit as long as his reputation doesn't take a hit. So on majors, you take action. On minors, you show acceptance. And all things, major or minor, you and I show love. And so... Um, he resolved those somehow. We don't have the backstory on Paul on all the stuff. But have you ever, and if, if you don't resolve that, I mean, have you ever seen a joyful, hypercritical person in your life? Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that. You get around somebody who's hypercritical all the time of other people, other churches, other whatever. Man, that person, that, no, that person either doesn't understand the gospel or has gotten so in the dark hole that he or she doesn't even understand that they definitely are not going to have joy. You ever seen somebody who is legalistic and joyful? I have not. You ever seen somebody who is bitter and joyful? I have not. None of those things are the same as joy. And uh, you're like, well, how do I deal with it? How do I deal with it? Now we've taught on this a lot, so we don't have time to unpack this all. We've taught on this a lot. We've taught on forgiveness a lot, but generally speaking in the Bible, you've got a tier system. Tear system basically goes like this. There's a lot of stuff you just overlook. You just overlook. Proverbs says it's the glory of man to overlook an offense. Somebody, somebody forgets to invite you to a party. You just overlook that. Somebody cuts in front of you uh, in the grocery store, takes too many, takes too, whatever, doesn't wear a mask, whatever it is you want to do. Just overlook that, all right? You don't have to go correct them. So you overlook some stuff. There's some stuff that you lovingly confront, especially if your relationship is real close with them. But no matter what it is, there's some stuff you're gonna have to become an expert on, and that is forgiving people, forgiving people. There is no lasting joy without understanding how do I forgive people? You know why? Because people are gonna injure you, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not on purpose, but because we're all a bunch of sinners, injury's gonna happen. And if you don't become an, it is a survival skill for you to be a forgiver, all right? If you, want to, if you want to get old and be bitter and angry and that person nobody wants to be around, then just don't be a forgiver. But if you want to be filled with joy and people that everybody wants to be around, you're going to have to learn how to release them from the debt they owe you. 
We've talked about it before. It doesn't mean they don't have consequences. It doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that you allow yourself to be taken advantage of over and over again. The idea is, you know what? Jesus forgave me and I released them. If you want some teaching on that, go to Romans 12 also, written by the guy that wrote Philippians, and just look how he handled that as the way he handled it here. So who is it that you need to resolve some conflict with? All right, if you can get your joy back, maybe you're the person, maybe you're the person that needs to apologize. Maybe you're the person that needs to go and ask forgiveness. Maybe you're the person that needs to write the letter. But whatever it is, Bible says, as far as it is with you, Paul, in another letter, Romans 12, he says, as far as it is with you, be at peace with all men. In other words, have you taken the action necessary that you need to take to either overlook it, to deal with it, or to let it go and forgive them? If you can have the joy back, you got to resolve, resolve some personal conflict. Second thing, this is the bigger one. Dan touched on it this week, so I'm just going to do a flyby on it. To get the joy back, what you see in Paul is the personal conflict didn't steal his joy. The difficult circumstances didn't steal his joy. And the reason is you see as a thread throughout this whole text is, is he rested, he rested in God's control. Theologians would call it God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is he is in control. He rules the universe with his feet up. He's not pacing back and forth, trying to figure out what he's gonna do next week. That's not God. And so when you look at the apostle Paul, just go from about verse 19 on, in 18 and 19, he says, I will rejoice. I know some things. And he says, I know this is going to turn out for my deliverance. And he says, either way, just let me honor Christ. Let me set the stage for you. You might or might not know this. The apostle Paul was the essential architect of the early Christian church. I mean, tons of these letters are from the apostle Paul. Incredible leader, incredible leader, amazing scholar just by his education and his background extremely intelligent. Even secular people have looked at his letters like, man, that guy was like a brainiac. He was like the whole package. And when God converted him, man, everything changed. All that stuff got channeled into the mission of God. And so what he would do is he was able to go into these metropolitan cities in the Greco-Roman world. He would go into these cities. He would start debating the gospel with all the smart thinkers of that day. And he was so good at debating, he ended up all every time. He'd win these people to faith in Jesus and he'd do it in such a numerical amount, he'd have to start a church there and then go on and do it again later on. And so one of his dreams was to go to Rome and preach the gospel. And now he finds himself in prison. And the Philippians were kind of discouraged. They're like, man, Paul, Paul, man, you wanted to be a preacher. You're spreading the gospel. You're like the main leader and you're in jail. You're attached to a jailer. You might be dead pretty soon. And so the Philippians themselves, they're getting discouraged. And so he writes them, he's like, listen, listen, I'm going to rejoice. This is going to turn out for my deliverance one way or the other. Two things I saw in this. Paul could already see how God was using the difficult circumstances. Now be clear, you and I all, we don't always get this. If somebody says, hey, you know, I can already, I'll put it this way. It's a blessing if God allows you to see how difficult circumstances are already being used in your life or in other people's life. In this case, the apostle Paul already could. I mean, Dan touched on it last week. He was giving boldness to the brothers to be able to say, you know what, if Paul can do it in prison and he can stand for the gospel, so can I. But even more so, even more so, he had a guard. I mean, this guy's the foremost evangelist of the early church. And he is attached, he is chained to a guard. They typically had three different shifts 
they would come in and they would have three different shifts chained to the apostle Paul. So they're all like, oh, you're chained to a prison guard. You're chained to a prison guard. Paul's like, no, they're chained to me. They're chained to me. They've got to sit here and listen to me for eight hours a day. And so he had this He had this understanding that, you know what, God's already using this to get the gospel out. I'm going to start a prison ministry here. But then in verse 21, he makes that amazing statement to live is Christ. What he says is, if I live, I'm going to plant churches. I'm going to preach the gospel. But in his sovereignty, I'm now a prisoner and I want to honor God. And if I die, I die. And that's, that's gain. I mean, this is what it is because of his definition of life. Because if you have a different definition of life, you can't, you can't say this. And we've all chased those things. You know, if, if to live is my boyfriend or my girlfriend and she breaks up with me, you know, then I'm devastated. All right. Uh, if to live is my career and I get fired, then I'm just totally crushed. What he's saying is to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it's a win-win. He's like, if I live, I'm going to be about God and his reputation and the gospel and his fame and the mission of God. If I die, guess what? I get to go and be with the God that I serve anyway. By the way, if you don't look forward to heaven, if you don't at least look forward to that, I know a lot of Christians are like, man, heaven sounds boring. You have a jacked up theology of heaven. Heaven is not flying around on a cloud with a harp and a bow and looking like a Teletubby. That's not at all what heaven's like. Different sermon. But he's basically going to win-win. He's like, if I, if I stay, it's great. But either way, God, you're sovereign. God, you're in control. Here's what you have to understand. The CPR for the Christian life is the sovereignty of God. When your heart is beating out of your chest, you're like, how's this gonna work out, all right? How's my marriage gonna get restored? How am I gonna pay bills, all right? I've been put on the sideline for two months, furloughed for two months, now I'm going back 50, how's that gonna happen? The CPR of the Christian life is the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that in the end God wins and he literally has the whole world in his hands, including you right now. Um, there's a lot of ways to illustrate this. Here's, here's a way I'll illustrate it uh, in one regard. I mean, he understood that he served a God who conquered death, rose from the grave, the resurrected Christ. So he's like, I'm not scared of death. If he can conquer the grave, I'm going to live for him now and I'm going to be with him when I die. And so the fact that he knew the end changed the way that he actually walked in the present. So for example, I know we're all starved with sports. I mean, without any sports, if, you, if you're used to watching sports, these this is like, man, how many reruns and how much, I mean, no, I don't mean to put down NASCAR or MMA, but come on, we got to have something real, right? We got to have some, if you're an MMA fighter, please don't beat me up. I'm just saying we're, we're starving for sports. So here's what I saw last week or maybe 10 days ago. And my undergrads from Texas Tech way out in West Texas. Last year was a great year for us in basketball. We made it to the national championship game before the refs stole it from us against the University of Virginia. But in the semifinals, the final four, we played Michigan State, who parenthetically had beaten Duke the game before. But we're playing them, and I remember watching it a year or so ago, and man, every call that went against us, I was freaking out. Every time the game got close, or every time Michigan State would go ahead, I was panicking, we're gonna lose, we're gonna lose. But this time, watching it the rerun, it was, you're like, well, it wasn't as enjoyable. It was every bit as enjoyable. But anytime a call went against us or we missed a shot or missed a play or whatever, you know, some lame call by the ref, I was like, whatever. It really doesn't matter. Didn't upset me. I'll go get a Diet Coke. You know why? Because I know at the end of the game, we win. All right. At the end of the game, we go on to the final game. 
What Paul's saying is like, listen, I know this. It's enjoyable now. I can rejoice now because I'm going to live for Christ or, or, or when I die, I get to go to heaven and be with God who I'm serving anyway. So you're like, what does that have to do with me? What if your first thought, what if your first thought in a problem, in a difficult situation was God, you are sovereign and you are going to use this problem for the accomplishing of your purposes. I mean, what if that's the first thing you think of? You know, God, you're a sovereign God. You got the whole world in your hands. You are going to use this issue, this problem for the accomplishing of your purpose. You know what you can do then? You can just exhale. You can kind of relax. You can rejoice. I mean, that is the pillow of God's sovereignty that you can put your head down on every single night. Like, you know what? God's got this in control because he is for us. You got to know that he is for us. Read Romans eight. He is for us. You don't die for somebody you're not for. But as Paul shows real clearly, he is for us. It's just not about us. We talk about that all the time. It's not about us. That's why Paul is mentioned one time and he's mentioned one time. Jesus is mentioned 61 times in this book alone. Why? Because it's not about Paul. Paul's like, you know what? My story's wrapped up in God's much, much bigger story. And so, uh, again, here's, here, let me run through a few scenarios because the only way pain, I'll put it this way, only if God is sovereign is there purpose in your pain. Only if God is in control is there purpose in your pain. So let me run through a few examples. Let's say, let's say you don't get the job. Let's say you get passed over for the job. You deserved it. You were the obvious man. You were the obvious woman to get the job. Everybody knew it. You were the most credentialed. All of that, you get passed over to whatever politics, whatever's going on. Now you can be sad, all right? You can be sad. You can be disappointed, all right? Christians are not stoics, all right? Stoics are people who don't show any emotion at all. Christians, Christianity is not stoicism, all right? That's actually closer to Buddhism than Christianity. Christianity says you can feel all the emotions all together, but it's not going to crush you. It's not going to crush you because you're like, you know what? Maybe, maybe God has me here for a bigger purpose. Maybe the purpose that God has me here is more than just me making another 10 grand a year or getting a corner office or getting a cooler title. Maybe, maybe God keeping me here has something to do with the guy that I work next to in the cubicle next to me uh, who is looking at how I handle this. And maybe, just maybe, it's like, you know what? His eternity is greater than my promotion. And you're thinking maybe there's going to be a day when God saves that guy and then he stands up to give a testimony. He's like, you know what? I was just kind of living for myself. I was trying to climb the ladder. And then I saw a guy that got passed over for a promotion that he definitely deserved. And then I saw the amazing hope and joy he still had. It's like that triggered something in me. It's like, you know what? I don't have what he has. I don't have what he has. Or maybe at, uh, I mean, you can just go on and on and on. Um, you don't, you don't get into the school you wanted to get into. You're like, man, I, I was wanting to get into this school and I didn't get into this school and I've been studying for five years to get into this school and I took all this extra to get into this school and I didn't get into that school and now I got to go to Texas Tech or something. You know, I got to go somewhere I didn't want to go. Maybe is that not God saying, you know what? Hey, there's an assignment I have for you at a Texas Tech and there's some awesome plans I have for you. Or somebody, again, if you're a teenager and your boyfriend breaks up with you and you're like, my life is crushed, it's not crushed. What that very well could be is 
Again, that could very well be God's just protection, all right? Just have a little Garth, Garth Brooks theology, all right? You know what? Thank God for unanswered prayer. Let that guy just keep walking. God's got a, God's got a plan for you. Or here's one, health issues. All of a sudden, I got a call. I got a call just the other day from somebody surprised. Bad health result came back. Bad health result. We didn't, we didn't see this. And I loved their response. Their response is, you know what? God's going to use this. God's going to use this. Maybe there's some doctors and nurses up at the hospital that need Jesus. And I'm determined. Remember saying this, Pastor, I'm determined to walk through this for the glory of God. That is, that's awesome. Or maybe you get blessed with something. Hey, how about this? You get blessed with something, money, talent, health is restored. And you're saying, you know what, how I use this is going to be not for building my kingdom. It's going to be for building God's kingdom. So whatever it is, you just sift it through. Because the bottom line is God does want you to have joy. He says, you know what, in John 16, he says, I want you to have the, f- the fullness of joy. And so in some ways, it's like supposed to be the birthmark. Let me ask you this. Is the joy that you have around your house or around your business or around your town, would people say, you know what, that's one of the most joyful people that, that I've seen. That is, that's the advertisement. That's your birthmark. I'll give you one. I'm not going to show it to you, but one of the things that happened, you might or might not know, but real, real, real recently, we got, we got a beautiful little granddaughter named Elsie. I know you think your grandkids or your kids pretty or handsome, but Elsie is way, way beyond that. Just way beyond that. And a lot of cool stories, but one of the things that was kind of cool the other day was, uh, I'm not going to show it to you. All right. I thought about, do I show it to you for an illustration? I won't. But right here, I've got a birthmark. All right. It's about that long birthmark right there, right on the love handle. That's where it is. And the other day, Tyler had Elsie and he's like, pulled up her little, whatever they, one pe- whatever that thing is, she had on and right in the exact same spot, she has a birthmark. I was like, first of all, I thought genetics are crazy. All right. DNA is crazy. Family resemblance is crazy. Point being is this, listen to me. Part of being a Christ follower is to have that joy. And if you've lost it, go get it, go get it back. Resolve the conflict that God brings to your mind today. Humble yourself. That's chapter two. Humble yourself. All right. Write that letter, make that apology. Let that thing, let it go back to God, forgive that person. And then say, you know what? In the midst of my difficult situation, I'm gonna trust and I'm gonna rest that God's in control. So let me pray for us, all right? Father, thank you for being a great God. Thank you for being a God who all through history has turned tragedies into triumphs, has turned what looks like a mess into an amazing message for people to see. God, help us to even look at the cross. What looked like the worst thing that has ever happened ended up being the best thing that could have ever happened for us. God, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters. God, help us to help us to uh, love each other. Help us be generous toward each other. Help us be gracious toward each other. Help us to love a city that is looking for people that actually have a joy that they cannot, that they want, but they just can't have. God, we love you. Thanks for the gospel. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.